0: Well, welcome to Emmaus Church this morning. My name's Nathan. Happy to see you here. Welcome to summer. Uh, we will be, let's see, raise your hand if you like a Bible, we'll hand one to you in the Bibles. You can follow along in the Bibles also. Um, there's communication cards tucked in there. So if you'd like to fill out a communication card, if you're new, new with us, newer with us, summer can be a really challenging time to get connected to a church because people are coming and going. It's easy to kind of um, be missed easier. We try really hard not to allow that to happen. But if you like, raise your hand, grab a Bible, fill out a card. You can um, hand one back to us later when we uh, collect an offering in a little bit. And, um, and that'll help us to connect with you and at least make an introduction. All right? Good. Come on in. Today, we're going to look at a short story that Jesus tells about prayer. It's, it's in the Gospel of Luke. The second half of the Bible is called the New Testament. Starts with four stories about the life and teachings of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke is the third one. We're going to be in chapter 18. And if you're in the Bible that we just handed out, it's on page 732. All right? So we'll be in Matthew, or I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 18. And I want to look at this story, friends. I want to look at this story because it contains one of the purest, simplest, most important prayers. And I really appreciate pure and simple when it comes to prayer. Uh, you know, some, have you ever heard the, the kinds of prayers that sound more like speeches than prayers? Like the person who's praying is just sort of telling God all the stuff that they know, or maybe they're telling other people all of the things that they know. It's a prayer, but it feels a little bit more like a speech. Man, I just really appreciate pure and simple when it comes to prayer. Sometimes prayers sound really strange, because people use words that they don't use when they talk normally. Suddenly they get sort of this prayer um, vernacular, and they start use, or they use phrases that they could never explain to you in a million years what they mean, but they've heard these phrases repeated in prayer over and over, so they pray using these prayers. Or some people's voices will change when they're praying. And I'm not trying to mock them, but it's just interesting to me how, how, how complicated and complex and, and kind of messy prayers can be. I love hearing little kids pray because it's just so straightforward. It's just so plain and simple. We've heard the greatest prayers around our dinner table from our little kids growing up. Just really straight, honest, not even worried about how anybody thinks about it kind of prayers. Do you get asked to pray in public settings? Has that ever happened to you? Are you like that person in your family that you got to get tapped uh, for like the, say grace before the meal or, or give a blessing or whatever? It happens to pastors all the time. I'm sure it happens to anybody who is seen as sort of the spiritual one in the room. Um, those can be complicated times. I've been asked just this last two weeks, I've been asked to pray at a city council meeting, I've been asked to pray at a baseball team meeting, and I've been asked to pray at a, uh, at a graduation party. And, and I actually get nervous when I'm asked to pray in these kinds of settings, because, I mean, it's, it's good and it's right and it's fine and it's an honor to be asked to pray, but, but often these are not pure and simple prayers. Um, sometimes they're a little bit more ceremonial, they're a little bit more complicated, there's a situation There's an event. You kind of feel like you need to sort of be aware of what's going on, bigger picture. Oftentimes, there's sort of a complex political situation or interesting relational dynamics, so you kind of feel like you got to be a little sensitive to that. I keep being asked to pray at one place, um, and and they keep asking me to pray there, but they always say, but don't say the word Jesus, right? So they're asking a Christian pastor to pray, but they don't want him to say Christ or Jesus. Uh, recently, I was asked to pray at this group, and my contact met me at the door, and she said, uh, "So, just so you know, the leader of the group really doesn't want you to be here." <laughs> right? So, you know, it's just a little more complicated, right? It's a little more messy sometimes. This whole idea of sort of public prayer—it can get busy. It can get a little bit of a, a messy. I love the pure. I love the simple. That's what I'm grateful for. And the story that we're going to read today is full of all kinds of messy social, cultural, psychological dynamics. It's kind of a mess, but the story includes this pure and simple prayer, and I want to draw your attention to it. First of all, you got to know this prayer. You've heard it a thousand times. You got to spend some time with it. Secondly, I want to recommend or offer this prayer to you if you're like, you know what? I haven't prayed in months. I have nowhere to start. I don't know sure where I'm at when it comes to talking to God. If you're there, this is a great morning for you because this is a good place to start. This is a great prayer to start with if you're just like I just I haven't prayed for a while. I'm not even sure what I should say to God. And then thirdly, I want to recommend if you if you're like you know I have a consistent prayer life. Uh, I I have a a consistent habit. I want to suggest that you. Take this prayer and centralize it. I wanna suggest that you, at least for a season, make this a foundational prayer for you. Uh, Perhaps this is something that you have not prayed for a long time. It it was, for me, for years, something that I never prayed. And through a series of events in my life and a series of uh, experiences that happened, this became a core prayer. And so I would suggest that you consider central or making this more of a core or foundational prayer in your life. Maybe you could say, well, maybe I'll just pray this for the summer. Maybe this could be a focus of your prayer for the summer. All right, so let's look at the story, and um, and we'll we'll start off with there. This is Matt, this is Luke chapter eighteen. Jesus begins this uh, time of teaching with two parables or two stories about prayer. The first, the point of the first story is to say you should always pray and you should never give up, and then. The second story deals more with the heart of prayer. It deals more with the foundation of prayer. It deals more with the essence of prayer. So here's the story. It's up on the screen. It's called the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's just the editorial kind of subheading. Verse 9, Luke 18. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right, so you gotta know right out of the gate, Jesus is being totally provocative. He is absolutely pushing people's buttons. He's trying to ruffle people's feathers. The Pharisees are likely in the audience. If they're not, they are a prominent, well-known group in town. They are exactly the group that everybody listening to Jesus would imagine when he said, Uh, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. Everybody would think, oh, that's the Pharisees. That's exactly who he's talking about. Uh, Jesus is not just talking about a bad, a certain bad attitude, in other words. He's talking about a specific group that personifies that bad attitude. Who were the Pharisees? They were like professional religious people. They were like religious lobbyists. They were advocating for strict religious, legalistic observance. Their hope for the future was rooted in the people of Israel perfectly obeying the law of God. This, they believed, is what would usher in the kingdom or the reign of God. So they're always pushing for, for legalistic, strict obedience. They're always pointing their fingers at anybody who's not doing it exactly right. And so Jesus is always tangling with these people. Jesus is against the Pharisees. The Pharisees are against Jesus uh, throughout most of the Gospels in terms of their debating, their philosophy of life, ministry, those kinds of things. The other main group in the story is the tax collectors. Tax collectors are equally as famous, or maybe we could say infamous, as Pharisees. Nobody wants to be a tax collector. Nobody wants to be around a tax collector. They were easy targets. Nobody liked them because their job was to collect... Ta- Basically, they're earning a living off the backs of their own people. They're collecting taxes. Okay, the, the, the nation of Israel was being oppressed and controlled by Rome, the Roman Empire. So the, Rome is the police state. The tax collectors were Jews collecting taxes from their own people for Rome. They're traitors, And the way they make their money is if they got to collect 100 bucks from the boys, they're actually going to collect 150, and they're going to pocket the extra for themselves. That's the way they they earn their their money, their their living. And so nobody likes these people. And Jesus chooses, as the two characters characters of his story, these two really well-known and polar opposite types of people. You got the Pharisees, and you got the tax collectors. Now, these were real people. So in the original context, you got to understand that Jesus's story would have just pulsed with all kinds of social connotations. If I began a story in a way that was actually similar to the way Jesus just began a story, about half of you would feel uncomfortable because I said this, and the other half of you would feel uncomfortable because I said that. You see, he is talking about real people in a real culture where there are real social dynamics that are just pulsing with uh, tension. And so he begins this story like this. Uh, in some ways, the story is, in, is a, a lot like, like a Saturday Night Live skit during the presidential campaign. Did you watch Saturday Night Live at all? I mean, it's been going around for so long. And I guess the viewership was just off the chart over the last presidential campaign because the central skits each Saturday night had to do with the presidential campaign. So you got your Hillary Clinton character, and you got your uh, your, your Donald Trump character, and the actors are exaggerating their, their gestures and their, their, their patterns of speech, and they're just basically making fun of and exaggerating both characters in the story, and people love it. They love it. They love just watching kind of the, the extreme version of the characters that are generally known in the, pop, in the population. So Jesus is brilliantly setting up the story between these two men whose stereotypical personalities are well-known and well-understood in his culture. And it sounds almost, I mean, this is what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, one a tax collector. Does that not sound like the classic setup to a joke, right? Two men walked into a bar, right? One was a plumber and one was the Pope or something like that. I mean, that's how we, that's, we still do this. We still set up like this. All right, here's how the story goes. Uh, Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a 10th of all I get. Okay, so this is exactly what the people hearing Jesus expect the Pharisee character to be like. You can imagine the people hearing this story and just loving it at this point because Jesus has this character down pat. He's got the gestures right. He's got the intonations right. He's got the attitude right. He's even saying the right words. Oh, this is exactly, you should hear Jesus do a Pharisee. He's amazing at it. Like, watch this, watch him do this. At this point, they're loving the story. They're just like, this is exactly right. Everyone in the crowd would have been delighted with this. They would have been laughing, except the Pharisees, of course. They would have been like, you know, really upset. And as soon as as Jesus draws them in with a sort of exaggerated everybody knows it's true but it's kind of funny approach he shocks them he shocks them because suddenly it gets really serious because the thing that happens next in the story is so unexpected here's what happens next verse 13 but a tax collector the tax collector he stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said god Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus just dives into his point, and here's his point, verse 14. I tell you, he tells the crowd, who was laughing 30 seconds ago, and now nobody's laughing. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So you got the Pharisee, and you got the tax collector. They're two extreme characters from another time, other part of the world. How should we relate to these characters? Because neither of these characters exist in the exact same form in our culture today. But I would think, as you probably think, that we, we understand them, right? We understand the types. We understand these types of people. Uh, I think generally, right? So let's just talk about him in terms of the first guy and the second guy, the first guy being the Pharisee. We know people like this. Maybe the guy like this is the guy in the mirror, right? He thinks he's better than everybody else. He's the guy who walks in the room, sizes everybody up and compares and ranks and decides who's better than and who's worse than. He's comparing his life to everybody else's life. And he's doing all of this to make it even worse and less attractive in a spiritual setting, in a setting like a church. He's sizing everybody up, and he does exactly what we expect him to do. He's all by himself, because he's too good for anybody else. Don't touch me. Don't step next to me. And he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people. And he names some of them, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, and even like this tax collector. guy's right there. I I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. That's his prayer. Can you believe that's his prayer? We're talking about prayer. And this is his example of this Pharisee's, this religious expert's prayer. Thanks that I'm better than everyone else, especially him. Thanks that I'm better than everybody else, especially her. And I'll just point her out and name her. I don't even feel comfortable doing that like pretending right now, right? But this is what he's doing, right? I keep all the rules. I fast, I tithe, I do family right, I do work right. I do social stuff right. I got it all together. Look at me because I got it figured out. I've got it right. You're lucky to have me on your side, God. Uh, Life's going great for me, but it's going great for me because I I deserve it, frankly. I do everything right. So that's why it goes really well for me. I'm better than because I'm the better man. That's what this guy's attitude is like. That's what he's saying. It's exactly what we expect him to say. And then there's the second guy. There's the second guy, the tax collector. And there's three things that are really surprising about the second guy. The first thing that's surprising is this guy's at the temple. Isn't that surprising? This guy's at the temple. Guys like this don't go to the temple. you got to understand that. They're not welcome there. They know they're not welcome there. If you started a joke with two dudes walk into a bar, one's the plumber, one's the pope, you're thinking, what's the the pope doing in a bar, right? At least some of you are thinking that maybe. The first thing you're thinking is what's he doing there? What's the tax collector doing at the temple? That's surprising. Second thing that's surprising about the second guy, he's praying. Are you kidding me? He was robbing my sister's house yesterday, right? Like he's praying. So already Jesus is totally messing with their stereotypes. He's totally making them uncomfortable because we want stereotypes because they help us understand reality. They help us order who's in, who's out, who we can trust, who we can't. And Jesus comes in right off the the, the top and starts messing with our stereotypes. In our world, friends, the second guy is on the outside. The second guy is the wrong guy. The second guy is wearing the wrong clothes. He is the wrong race. He is in the wrong place. He is in the wrong group he is illegitimate, he is illegal, he is ill-informed, he is ill-prepared, he is bad news, don't be this guy, don't be near this guy, he's the second guy, you don't wanna be around him. Nobody likes this guy, nobody likes him. So it is shocking. Here's the third thing that's surprising, and I would say it's more than surprising, it's shocking when we see the expressions of his heart how do we see those? Through the posture of his body. Posture matters. He's off alone. He won't even go into the main area. And it's really interesting, and I didn't know this until I took some time to study it this week, but he doesn't even look up to heaven when he prays. Apparently, the, the typical traditional posture of prayer in the Jewish culture is to look up to heaven and raise your hands. And he's not, he, it, Jesus makes it clear. He, he won't even look up to heaven. So we see the expressions of his heart through his physical posture. And then we, it's shocking when we hear what comes out of his mouth, which essentially are just words of humility. That's what comes out of his mouth. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Some scholars argue that the best translation of the word hamartalas, which is the word a sinner, is actually the sinner the sinner. So the contrast is stark. The first guy's prayer is rooted in how he's so much better than that sinner. And the second guy's prayer is rooted in the fact that he is the sinner. Isn't that powerful? It's two totally different perspectives and beginning points in prayer. And so now Jesus is not just teaching, you got to know, to entertain them or to inform them. He's teaching to transform the people who are listening to him. He's teaching to transform us. The point of this story is to change us. So let's break this down, let's push into this a step farther, and let's examine ourselves in light of these two characters of this story. I'll ask three questions. And maybe you can just fill out like this T graph on your notes as we do this. First question is, What are you counting on? What are you depending on, relying on? What are you counting on? Specifically, I guess, in the context of prayer or in your relationship with God, what are you counting on? What are you trusting in? Okay, the first guy is counting on his own goodness. That's what he's banking on. He has kept the rules, he joined the right group, he worked hard, he's done really well. He's counting on the fact that he's a good person we hear that all the time in our culture. I'm a good person or she's a good person or whatever. What's the second guy counting on? The second guy is counting on the mercy of God and nothing else. That's what he's counting on. He's counting on the mercy of God, pure and simple. Not the mercy of God and just the mercy of God. That's all I got. That's all I'm counting on. What are you counting on? Second question, what do you need? What do you need? First guy needs nothing. He's got it, thanks. I'm good. Got it totally taken care of. Going into the temple to pray, it's what I do. I'm in control. Isn't it fascinating that here's a prayer that includes no request? He doesn't ask for anything. And we can go overboard, I know, asking for just a list of things all the time. Our, our, we, could, we can just pray or we're asking for things all the time. But isn't it, I guess I would be a little bit suspicious if my prayer life never included asking for anything. If it was all about telling God stuff, I think I'd be a little suspicious of myself. Like, what's going on with you, dude? He doesn't ask for anything. The sense that you get is that this first guy doesn't think he needs anything. The second guy, what does he need? He needs God's mercy. That's what he needs. He needs God's mercy. He is desperately aware of his own need for the mercy of God. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, it is his deep awareness for his need that drives him to pray. That's why he walked in the temple and everybody's staring at him. That's why he's praying and everyone's like, oh my gosh, can you believe he's doing that? He doesn't care because he knows he needs God so badly. If you feel like, I don't really feel that, I just, I'm being honest, I just don't feel a real sense of obligation or desire or need to to pray, I'd say, well, thanks for being honest, that's a really good step, but you know what's going on there is you're not aware of how badly you need God. That's what's going on because it is your awareness of your need for God that is the only true compelling force to bring you to a place of prayer to God. Would you agree? It's in the times of my life when I'm like, dude, I'm flying right now. I'm just scoring. I'm doing everything great. That's when I'm like, you know, maybe I'll say thank you, but I'm not like despot. Man, it's the times when I am broken. I am desperate. I'm afraid. I'm fragile. That's when I am like, I'm going to pray in the morning. I'm going to pray at noon. I'm going to pray at night. I'm going to pray all day long. I'm just constantly praying. Why? Because I'm super spiritual? No, because I know I'm in need. That's why. It's real simple. <laughs> because I know I'm in need. And then the third question, what are you hoping for? What are you hoping for? The first guy, I don't know, I have a blank in my notes. I, I don't know what he's hoping for. What do you think the first guy is hoping for? What do you think he's hoping to get? Like, congratulations, what did you say? acknowledgement maybe, some sort of sense of public approval or something like that? Man, I'm telling you, and Jesus says this, not me, but if, you're, if, if, if what is motivating your spirituality is the approval of others, then Jesus says you will receive your gift in full. That will be a reward and you'll receive it in full, right? In other words, if you're doing this for others, congratulations, you'll get what you want and that'll be all that you get. And really, Jesus' point is it's not really worth much, What do you think he's going for? What do you think he's hoping to accomplish? Any other thoughts on that? I'm sorry? Superiority. Superiority? Yeah, thanks, Bobby. Yeah, maybe he's just trying to sort of establish himself as like better than, and, and he's actually using a spiritual exercise to do that, which is pretty sick. Yeah. It's hard to tell what he's going for because his theology is so whacked, It's hard to tell what he's hoping for because his prayer is so (laughs) self-centered. Versus the second guy, what's the second guy hoping for? He's hoping for the mercy of God. That's what he's hoping for. He's hoping for the mercy of God. That is his hope. Please, God, I am hoping for your mercy. I am hoping for your... Does he deserve it? No. That's why it's mercy, right? Of course he doesn't deserve it. He's wrong on 12 different ways. He's wrong, but he's praying for mercy. And according to Jesus, he'll get it. According to Jesus, he'll get it because he humbles himself before the Lord. And so God will pour out his mercy on the messed up, broken, confused, I've done a bunch of bad stuff person who says, but I know I need mercy. And you and I can hope for that and you and I can count on that too, right? We can hope for that and we can count on that. Even if we're just, we've just made a mess, we've, just, we've done selfish things, we've broken things that shouldn't have been broken, we've offended people that shouldn't have been offended, we've offended God, we can count on the fact that if we humble ourselves before the Lord and ask for mercy, he'll give us mercy. So this summer, we're going to preach through a series called Common Prayers, a series of common prayers in the Bible. These are honest cries of the heart, that people have prayed that have resonated throughout human history. And those who have prayed these prayers, uh, these common prayers, have received lasting hope. That's why they continue to be prayed. So we're going to look at all kinds of prayers in the next few weeks. so It's a wide range of prayers, but they share this in common. Those who pray them, pray them because they know they need help, because they know they're in need. They know they need God's mercy. I want to say that at the core of all the prayers that we teach from this summer will be this prayer for mercy. This is, in the end, why we pray prayers that are true prayers and not just speeches and not just ceremonial statements. These are the, this is what's at the core of the true prayers that we pray, this longing for mercy, this need for God, and this awareness that this is what we need. We know we need God's help. And I would say we actually need more than just God's help, right? We need more than just God's help. We need mercy. Let me just take a second and, and talk about the difference between grace and mercy. Um, grace is just the good that you don't deserve, right? Justin and I go to lunch. We have a good conversation. At the end of lunch, he says, hey, I got it. I'll, I'll take care of lunch. That's mercy, That's grace. That's grace. That's just, oh, hey, thanks for picking that up. I didn't deserve that. That's just a gift that I didn't know was coming. That's just grace. Grace is hard for some of us to ask for. But it's not as hard to ask for as mercy is hard to ask for. Because you know what mercy is? Mercy is I'm driving across the state of Wisconsin a few years ago, and I was, at that time in my life I was running a lot, and I had a watch. And my watch that I used when I would run would show me my estimated time of arrival at my point of my goal. And so the game you play when you're running is like, okay, it's gonna be 6.04. Well, maybe I can get that down to 6.03. If I run a little faster, I'll get that down to 6.02. You follow me? So the car I was driving, a borrowed Suburban, had a GPS screen in the front corner and it had the estimated time of arrival. And I was playing that game as I'm driving across Wisconsin. Like my estimated time, of, I'm shaving time off the, the, the time of my drive. And I pass a cop like that. And uh, he turns around, and he pulls me over. And uh, I remember this because I was uncomfortable. My wife asked for mercy. (laughs) My wife said, could you not give us a ticket, please? I know we deserve it, uh, but but how about we, could you... It was really hard. I didn't wanna ask for, it's hard to ask for mercy. That's my point. It's harder to ask for mercy than it is to ask for grace because grace is the good that you don't really deserve. Justin's gonna buy my lunch. Mercy is when you do deserve something negative and you, you don't get it. It's, it's withheld out of love, right? Or out of mercy, right? Hard to ask for mercy. And so it's not just that we need help we actually need mercy. We've done stuff that is not right. We deserve to be punished, experience negative consequences, however you want to put it. And yet we're invited to pray for mercy. And and that's why a final comment, that's why we built these altars up here that are are here on the floor. Uh, this, This need for people to pray for mercy from God is so core to a relationship with God that there's furniture that represents this reality. Throughout the Old Testament, people build altars. These are places of seeking God, of thanking God, of acknowledging that without God, we would be sunk. In the original house of God, the tabernacle, there was an altar. They built this altar as a place of seeking God's mercy. And the center of worship has always included an altar. Through the ministry of Jesus, the altar becomes also a table. And it's not just a place of sacrifice, But the cross and the table kind of come, the cross and the altar kind of come together, and it's a place of sacrifice, but also a place of nourishment, right? So we have this altar table, which becomes like a central point in Christian worship. And then throughout history, especially in this country and in England, this altar table has been extended down onto the floor in the form of a place where you can physically demonstrate your need for mercy before the Lord. This is not about other people. This is just about you and God. And I'm so stoked that we have this facility and that we're able to actually begin to use and and create a space for this kind of prayer for mercy. I don't know what to pray. That's great, because you don't have to say anything at an altar. You just kneel there. And your posture communicates the true attitude of your heart, the need of your heart, right? I don't know what to pray. Well, it's like, it's it's anything that you need, any kind of acknowledgement that that you are in need of God. You're in need of his mercy. God, I need your direction. God, I need your peace. This is a place to pray that. God, I need your courage. That's what I need. God, I need your forgiveness. God, I need to bow before you in humble gratitude. You have helped me, given to me, provided for me, taken care of me, or God, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. That's something we could pray at an altar. Have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Friends, this is at the heart of Jesus' story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's what's at the heart of it, this prayer. Lord, have mercy, right? This is the prayer that I encourage you to begin with if you haven't been praying in a long time. Begin with this prayer. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. It is and has been for more than 10 years the most common prayer I pray. I pray it all throughout the day. I'm just constantly praying this. God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. God, help me. Hit the door. God, help me. I'm going in. I don't know what's there. God, help me. God, I'm, I just handled that parenting situation terribly. Lord, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Right? I'm thinking this selfish thought. I'm being tempted in this way. God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Jesus' point is to realize, to know you are a person in need of God's mercy. That's who you are. You can play the whole comparison game if you want to. Who's better? Who's better? who's who's more successful, who's smarter, who's more powerful. You can walk into a room and rank everybody if that's your game, but you need to understand this, friends. God's not playing that game. He doesn't play that game. He He just doesn't play it, the whole comparison thing. The fundamental reality is that you are a person in need of God's mercy, and so the invitation is to just embrace that is to acknowledge that and say what a good god that there that this concept of mercy even exists in addition to it existing a way has been made for us to receive mercy a place has been set apart for me to pray for and receive mercy so let's do that let's take a minute and let's just let's just quietly pray for mercy let's pray We'll take a, a short break. We'll pray for communion, and then we'll sing with uh, Amy will lead us, and during that time, you're welcome to come down to the altars if this is a place that would be, and you don't have to, of course, but, but we'll, we'll spend a longer time in a few minutes, but let's just pause now. and God, you know us Completely. And I pray that even though it's challenging, we don't like to do it, something about it, it just doesn't feel, I guess it's humiliating. Uh, But I pray that we would readily acknowledge our need for you. Say, "I, I need mercy. I need what I don't deserve. I need to even not receive what I do deserve out of your goodness. Would you you have mercy on me? Would you tear up the ticket? Set me free? Thank you, Lord. And God, may this be a merciful place. And may people who need mercy feel welcome in this place to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.